welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley with Senior Pastor Carol Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Carol today as he shares with us from God's Word. We do that. Now, take out your Bibles, if you will. I want you to find the book of Micah. That that passage of scripture, that, that book that you always think of, it's Christmas time. I wonder what Micah had to say. But he did have some stuff to say. So we're in Micah today. We're in Micah chapter 5. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 5. Really, verse uh, 2 and, and 3 and 4 are the primary verses that we're going to be looking at today. And uh, and so, let's bow in prayer as we come to God's word. Father, thank you for, for the birth of Jesus. Thank you for for the fact that, that we get to worship and adore him, that we get to remember his coming the first time, and we get to look forward to his coming once again. Father, we pray that Holy Spirit would move and work in our hearts and lives, that he would give us encouragement, that he would give us prompting to be involved in the work that you've given us to do in ways that we never dreamed that you might be able to do that. So, Father, we come before you now. Speak to our hearts through your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This series that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue today and a little bit next week uh, with our cantata, is, is really uh, is, um, looking at certain hymns that we sing very regularly at Christmas time and looking at the significance uh, that those words have for us that, um, and the story that they tell and how those lyrics relate to the gospel message. And so the song that, that Howard sang a few moments ago was the gospel. The song we're looking at today encompasses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to know, but today I want to look at this particular hymn um, that is certainly among the favorites of many people, uh, and I want to look not so much at the words of the lyrics, because we just sang all of those lyrics just now, and so we and, and they're going to be familiar to us, but more than looking at the lyrics, I want to look today specifically at the story behind the lyrics, at the story that, that got them onto paper and, 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 and how they touch our lives. And, and, and I, I love to hear the stories of, of the backgrounds of, of, of songs. I love listening to songwriters especially. I love, I love when when you hear them on the radio or you read about them and they talk about how, how they came up with those lyrics or what was going on in their life at that time when, when they put those lyrics or they wrote the music, uh, whatever time that frame that might have been. And, and you'll hear this sometimes. Um, sometimes you hear it even like on Kayla radio, you'll hear people talking. And sometimes you'll hear it on, on just secular things about secular songs and music or endeavors. And, and a lot of times they will say, especially in the secular realm, they will say, you know, as soon as I started to write this, I knew it was going to be a hit. I was, I was aware that it was going to be a hit. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know how you know that for sure, but... but Many times they are, and that's not unusual. Um, 
more often than not, for Christian writers, it's, it's not so much I knew it was going to be a hit. I just knew God was leading me to write that. And this is what was going on in my life. Um, but, but however it happens, there is this, there's this sense of many times that there's something great is going to happen. And, and, it, and not just in music. It's also in books that are written and in businesses that are started. And people will say, from the get-go, we knew this was going to change the world. We knew this, this book or we knew this business was going to be a life changer. And so we put everything we had into it to just to see what God had to do. And sometimes you just know right away that the work that you're doing matters. However, there are some times when you may think that what you're doing really isn't all that important or maybe really isn't all that eternal, that it's not really going to make a difference maybe in anybody's life. And so it's not always that we feel like we're going to be a world changer. Sometimes it's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I just think that this is what I should be doing. And, and in fact, is there are times when you feel like your, your efforts really are not significant at all. You ever feel that way? My life is just not significant. What I do is not all that significant. Who's going to remember after I'm gone what I did? Who's going to even know what I did now that I'm still here? And that's not uncommon either. That a lot of times, as Christians, we feel that way, um, that what we do in our lives just don't matter all that much. However, nothing can be further from the truth as far as God is concerned. That you are not significant and that your life does matter. And that's the truth that we'll see behind the meaning of this beloved story. This is how it happened. Way back in the 1860s, a recently ordained Episcopalian um, priest named Phillips Brooks visited the Holy Land. So it wasn't just in our lifetime that people made pilgrimages to the Holy Land. He made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in, in the 1860s, and, and he visited there uh, over, the, over the Christmas season, and he said that on Christmas Eve, they went to Bethlehem. They traveled to Bethlehem. They'd been in Jerusalem. They traveled down about the seven miles to Bethlehem, and he said, just before dark, we rode out, and you can be certain they didn't ride in a car. They rode out probably on a donkey or a horse or, or a cart or something like that. But they rode out into the fields around Bethlehem. And he said, sure enough, there were shepherds that night out in the fields with the sun going down and darkness coming over watching their sheep. And then he said... After that, we went back into Bethlehem, and he said that they attended a Christmas Eve service in in the Basilica, or the Church of the Nativity. Now, the Basilica of the Nativity is in, in, in Bethlehem, and it is, it is really maybe one of the most uh, traveled to places on earth because it is, it is supposed to be right on the spot of the, where the manger was where Jesus was born. Now, you know, that's the front of the church or the basilica on the bottom right-hand corner. Top left-hand corner is, is where they think that's where it is, that that's where it was. 
doesn't look anything, obviously, like a manger. There's no straw. There's no hay. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. There's no lowing. Uh, there's no all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it looks like marble and a lot of candles. And it's, and it's actually, it's, obviously, it's a Catholic church. Um, and so that's what, what we're looking at. But it made an impact on, on, on this gentleman, on, on Phillips Brooks. And, and so um, years later, he captured the memory of that experience in the verses of this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thy eye. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, a silent star goes by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. He didn't write it that night that he was in Bethlehem. But it inspired a song that he did write. He wrote these verses that are so familiar to help the children of his church in Philadelphia. He was pastoring now the church in Philadelphia. And his desire was to write a song that the children could sing on Christmas Sunday for their worship service. That would include the children. And so he sat down and with the recent trip to Bethlehem in mind, he wrote these words of O Little Town of Bethlehem. After he wrote them, uh, he said it was, he was really just indulging his hobby. He said that, that he was a wannabe songwriter. And so he just did it because he enjoyed doing it and because it was his avocation. It was his hobby. And then he asked the church organist, a man by the name of, of Louis Redner, uh, to put the words to music. Now, Redner was not a professional musician either. Playing the organ was his hobby. His, his occupation was not as a professional musician. He was, he was a real estate agent, if you will. That was his field. He sold property. Uh, in, uh, in and around Philadelphia. And, and so he did that, and playing, playing the organ was his avocation, his hobby. And so when Brooks came to him, his priest, and said, I want you to write some, a, medley, a, a melody rather, um, for this, it came at probably the most difficult time that you could imagine. Imagine this. It is the last week before Christmas, and your pastor comes and says, write music for these words I just wrote, and I want it for next Sunday for the worship service on Christmas Sunday. How many of you would say, hey, I got all kinds of time. I've got no problem with that. I'll just write a new song here. Uh, and, and so he said, okay, I'll try, but, but he was his busiest time that, that he could imagine. And so he said, you know, his, later he said his priority that week was to get this is what his priority was, was to get his Sunday school lesson ready. So I got to teach Sunday school on top of everything else. And you want me to write a song? He said, yeah, that's what I want. Do both and have it ready. And so, so all week long, Pastor Brooks kept saying, do you have the music? Do you have the music? Do you have the music? And he kept saying, I'll have it. I'll have it. I'll have it. And finally he said, I'll have it by Sunday. And Saturday night, before Sunday, 
Lewis Redner sat down and wrote this very basic melody so they could have it on Sunday morning. And the kids actually sang it on Sunday morning, on Christmas Sunday. He said later that he wrote the music in great haste and under great pressure. You ever feel that way in life? Someone's putting a lot of pressure on you. Get it done. I need it done now. I want it done. It's got to be done on time. We've got to practice a little bit. Get it done. And sometimes that happens in church, doesn't it? Even it happens in our ministries. And you just feel like, I don't even think this is going to be any good. Fact is, neither of these two men thought this was going to be any good. They had no intention of it being. They were not professional musicians. That wasn't their, that wasn't their calling. But they enjoyed music, and so they said, okay, we can work together, and maybe this can come to, to, to fruition. And so um, they thought, you know what? We're going to write this little song. Kids are going to sing it on Sunday morning. Monday morning, pastor's going to come in. He's going to take the sheet music. He's going to file it away in a cabinet, and it will never be seen again. That was their intention, that this was just going to be one time song and never heard again. Man, were they wrong. This song has been sung to the point it's one of the most popular carols in the world. And it's hard to imagine going through the Christmas season without singing this song at least one time. And in fact, not only is it not only was it not only sung just one time, this year alone it will be sung millions of times in this Christmas season. And when we sang it a few moments ago, we're just adding to that millions uh, of, of others who are singing that. And, and behind this story, there are some important lessons to remember, important things that we need to know. And that's what I want to focus on here for a moment, that there are really three ideas that I want to bring to your attention besides uh, the idea that Nat King Cole has the best version of this song that you could probably find. But that's not one of the lessons I wanted to teach for you today. So take out your notes, three lessons about how you and the work you can do can be used by God. How can what you're doing be important to God? How can you be used by God? And how can you move forward to do that? The first lesson that you have needed to know today is that in God's economy, there's no such thing as obscure. There's absolutely no such thing as obscure. You could probably just take that out of your Bible. There are a couple of words you could cut out of your Bible, I mean, not your Bible, out of your dictionary at home if you have a dictionary. I know we have Google now, so we don't need a dictionary. But some of us are just old school enough that we still have dictionaries in our in our on our somewhere in the house or in her office. And you could, take a, you could take an X-Acto knife and you could cut out the word impossible. Because with God, nothing is impossible. We learned that in the Christmas story. And you could cut out the word obscure. Because with God, nothing that you do is obscure. There is no obscure work. There is no obscure 
responsibility that God gives to us. And so, in, in, if any two musicians could be labeled obscure, it would be these two men, Brooks and Redner. I mean, they should have sung that song on Sunday morning, put it in the file, and nobody would ever heard their names. We would have never known their names today. Nobody would have known them in history because it was just a little kid's song just to get the kids involved in worship. They were part-time musicians, part-time dabblers in music, if you will, and, their own, and this was their only memorable song. We don't know what else they might have written musically because it, they didn't stand the test of time, whatever they were. But this one song is significant. They were, they were, you know, they really thought that they were going to be like the, the band that wrote Hey Macarena. One song, and I can't remember the name of who did it. You know, they thought that's who they were going to be. They were the original Hey Macarena, Macarena guys. It's going to be over with. And, and they could have never been remembered in history. In fact, Philip Brooks considered himself um, not just an obscure music writer, but he also considered himself an obscure pastor. He didn't see himself as any kind of ministerial hero. That wasn't his calling, he didn't think. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 in the New Living Translation says this. It says, don't think you're better than you really are. If there was one guy in history who took that verse to, to heart, it was Phillips Brooks. He said, I am not better than I think I am. In fact, I don't think I'm any good much to start with. Uh, and, and he lived by that. That was, that was his motto. Early in his career, uh, he was fired as a teacher. And after he was fired as a teacher, he said this, I do not know uh, what, will, what will become of me, and I do not care much. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or other I don't seem to come to much now. He said, I'm not amounting to anything. I thought I might, but I'm not. He also wrote at one time, that his ambition was to be a parish priest. He didn't start out that way. He started as a teacher in school. But he wanted to be a parish priest. But then he said about that, he said, but I don't think that I will amount to much of one. So he was not a guy who was, who was the guy, if you wanted somebody to come uh, to your town and, and talk about or preach about um, you know, self-assurance and, and self-esteem, he's not the guy you'd have called because he didn't have any of that. But you know what? It was his lack of, of that self-esteem that made him usable to God, that made him available to God. God took that lack in him and that attitude of not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to that made him who he was. Because in his ministry, in his parish ministry, in Philadelphia, in the, at the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia, and then later at Trinity Church in Boston, he led both of those churches through very large attendance campaigns, and those churches grew tremendously 
under his leadership. For a guy who didn't think he would amount to anything, God said, good, I have other plans for you. I got plans for you. Consider himself just an obscure preacher, but prove far from it. In the same way, if any town on the face of the earth could be considered obscure, it might be Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just this little, just this little small village. It was, you know, you could consider it just a a bedroom community, probably had no more than a thousand residents in Jesus' day. Wasn't known for anything spectacular. Working class people lived there. Only the only fame that they had up to that point was that King David was born there. But that was literally hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Nothing exciting had happened there since that time. Nothing of importance. It wasn't affluent. The nobility, the rich and the famous didn't go visit there. It was obscure as far as the world was concerned. But God had something greater even for this village, for this little bedroom community. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is what Micah said. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come uh, for, for me one who will ru- be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And down to verses 4 and 5. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of his name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Bethlehem, I got plans for you. Out of you is going to come the Messiah. Out of you will come the one who will change the world. Out of you, the world will finally have the opportunity to know and experience my peace. And towns like Bethlehem may seem destined to obscurity, but when God has a plan for that community, everything can change. You may feel like you are bound for obscurity, but God has a plan for you. And in the midst of that feeling of obscurity, he can do world-changing things. Same could be said for a young carpenter in Nazareth who was engaged to be married to a young woman. They were poor, probably uneducated, and they probably would have been voted at the end of the year most likely not to be included in the pages of history. For their class, Joseph and Mary. Who knows them? Who's heard their names before? What do they have to offer? God 
had a plan for them. And it wasn't going to be obscurity. And you may find yourself sometimes saying, you know, but Pastor, I don't know who I am. I'm nobody special. And I don't know what I can do. How can I make a difference in my community? How can I make a difference at church? How can I make a difference in my family? If I don't even know who I am and I don't know what I can do, and, and you, can, you might be saying, I'm just A, and you can fill in the blank after that. You may be saying something like, you know, Pastor, I am just a volunteer. I am just a helper. I am just a homemaker. I am just an underling. I am just a, and it doesn't matter what you put after that. You can fill in that blank. But God has a plan for you as a Christian. He has a plan for your life. He has a calling for your life. And he doesn't much care what's in the I'm just us, whatever you put in that blank. He's not really too concerned about what you can and can't do. He said, you are not secure. When God has a plan... And he certainly does for each one of you in here today. There's no such thing as obscure. Second lesson we need to hear today is not only that there's no such thing in God's economy as obscure, but in God's economy, there's no such thing as forgettable either. There's no such thing as forgettable. Another way to say that, if we wanted to wanted to maybe clarify that a little bit, is that there's no such thing as an insignificant effort. That effort that you put in never is insignificant in God's economy. It is not forgettable. Phillips Brooks wrote this song um, as, as, as what you might call a disposable song. It was that one time, and he didn't expect it to be a hit. It wasn't a, a one-hit wonder, he didn't think. This was just a one time we're gonna, the kids are going to sing it and I'm going to throw it away at that point and go on to something else maybe. Um, and that's how it was written, that expectation that it was just going to be sung at that Christmas service and, and it was going to be performed by children and then it was going to be forever forgotten. Now, as a pastor for, for you know, just a few years, uh, I've, I've been where he's at. I'm not a musician that's not my, that's my avocation, it's a hobby, but I'm not really a musician. But I've written a lot, of, a lot of lyrics. Mostly I have changed the lyrics of a lot of songs. As a youth pastor for many years, and as a pastor, and as a father and, and a grandfather, um, I love taking songs and just rewriting them for my kids and my grandkids, especially at birthday times. But I don't like just happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. I like to, because I started this as a teenage, as a, as, a, as a very young youth pastor. Every Sunday morning, we had a lot of kids, and, and somebody's birthday every Sunday. And we would sing, happy birthday, oh, happy birthday, buzzards flying in the air. And I'm not going to go on because it gets kind of gruesome from there. <laughs> but then I just make up verses to that. When Jacob, our 16-year-old grandson, turned 16, 
Barb sent him 16 individual, 16 sixteens, 16 somethings. And it was a big box got sent. And I wrote a verse for every year of his 16th year on that same song. With kids, I love to sing songs with them. I change the words. If you're happy and you know it, or if you're saved and you know it, say amen. If you're happy and you know it, say amen. And I have. If you're happy and you know it, go. If you're happy and you know it, go. Or Jesus is a friend. He's a friend next to you. Jesus is a friend, so sing along. Jesus is a friend. He's a friend next to you. Jesus is a friend, so sing. Sing along. I do. Instead of shake a friend's hand, I do pick a friend's nose, pick a nose next to you, pick a friend's nose, and sing along. I am never going to be known as a songwriter. Fact is, most people aren't going to remember those things that I wrote. I don't even remember most of those things that I wrote or that I sung. But we don't know what God has in store. Phillips Brooks had no idea that anybody would remember any of this thing that he wrote. Redner had no idea that this melody would catch on and people would know it for the next hundreds of years. Um, And God can use the smallest thing in your life to do the greatest thing that he wants to do. Because he says, it is not forgettable. It is not insignificant. I want you to be a part of that. And you've probably heard this story before, uh, perhaps, because it happened right here in our state. But in 2016, there was a, a lady uh, living down with her husband down in Mesa, Arizona. And, and so she was, it was coming up to Thanksgiving, and she said, I want to, and I need to make sure who's going to come to Thanksgiving dinner. And so she texted. This is a grandmother texting. And, you, you know, a lot of you are grandmothers, and you kind of know the struggles with texting because this was not our world when we were growing up. She didn't know that her grandson had changed phone numbers. Somebody else had his phone number now. So she texted who she thought was her grandson, and, and, the, and the text was very simple. Uh, she, just, she just said, essentially, um, are you coming for Thanksgiving for dinner? Your grandmother. Her name was one is Wanda Dench. Wanda Dench. She sent that text, and it went not to her grandson, obviously, because he didn't have that phone number anymore. But it went to a young man uh, at that time, sixteen years old, and his name was as J- Jamal Hinton. And so you see, you see Wanda there on the left, and Jamal right in the middle. And that's her. That's the husband of, of Wanda in the back, and Jamal's girlfriend now. Uh, but um, he he wrote back, and he said, "Who are you?" And she she texted back, and she said, "I'm your grandmother." And then she took a selfie and sent him the picture. He answered back, "You're not my grandma," but. Can I still grab a plate? You know what she wrote back? She texted back. Sure. That's what grandmas do. 
They feed everybody. And he showed up. Every year now, since 2016, he shows up. Because of COVID, a couple years later, Wanda's husband passed away. Some hard times in, in Jamal's life. But that simple text brought them together. This year, Wanda sold her house in Mesa, moved here to Prescott Valley. This year, Thanksgiving was here in Prescott Valley. She bought a bigger house. Living alone, bought a bigger house. She's working with Airbnb people, and she's opening up an Airbnb. She made sure that the second house had a second suite so that people coming to stay would have their own bedroom and their own private bath. And they invited not only Jamal and his family, because his family got involved with it eventually over the years too, but they opened it up to some other people to come, not knowing who they would be. They called it 16, because it started in 2016. What can I do? I don't know. I can fix dinner for my family. And God can take that. What you think is forgettable, what you think is just ordinary stuff, not really very significant, and change the lives of families, change the lives of people. Stories like Wanda and Jamal's help us to realize there's really nothing that is obscure and there's nothing that is insignificant. This melody was supposed to fade into memory and oblivion the following Christmas in night of uh, following Christmas of 1868 and yet uh, this year it's just going to be heard over and over and over again. In the same way one barely noticeable word of encouragement or one hardly observable act of kindness or one anything can reap benefits beyond your ability to imagine. Somehow, even today, we can't help but remember those forgettable shepherds that Maggie read about in Luke chapter 2. Don't know one of their names. Don't know anything about their families. Don't know anything about where they lived, where they went to school, if they ever went to school, if they ever had a different job, or if they just remained shepherds all their lives. We don't know anything about them. We should just be able to forget them. And yet, what do we do? Every year we remember them. Every year they speak to our hearts. In verse two, or chapter 2, verses 16 and 19, again it says in Luke, So they hurried off, talking about the shepherds, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up 
all these things and pondered them in her heart. There is no such thing as insignificant service. There's no such thing as forgettable efforts in the kingdom of God. God's economy, there is no such thing as obscure. In his economy, there is no such thing as forgettable. And in his economy, there is no such thing as amateur status. There is no such thing as amateur status. Mentioned earlier that that both Brooks and Redner weren't professional musicians. They weren't commissioned to write this song. Nobody cared about it, it didn't seem. They just put the song together because they both loved music and they both loved serving God's people. It's going to be used in church. It's going to be used there. It's going to touch people's lives. We want to serve God. We want to serve people in church. And so they... Brooks wrote these, these lyrics from his personal experience of having visited the Holy Land um, and having been in Bethlehem on a Christmas Eve um, some years earlier. And, and that was all that qualified him to write this. That was his qualification. That was what was on his resume at that point, to be a songwriter, to write this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And... and it is all that qualified him to connect all of the singers and the listeners with the heart of Christ. In the church, unfortunately, we have much a different attitude. Many times in churches, the attitude will be, okay, there's work to be done, there's lives that need to be touched, and so it's the staff's job to do the work. They're the ministers. They do the work of ministry. And the rest of us sit down and we watch. We watch the professionals do the work. Because it's not my job. I'm not qualified. We pay them to do the work. That's what most some, but I think most Christians really believe that the work of ministry is the professionals. You know why in a lot of churches, in mainline Protestant churches and Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, why the clergy wear vestments and robes? They started wearing them because they wanted to separate themselves from the laity. They wanted the laity, people who were not pastors, who were not professional ministers, to stay out of the work. They said, we'll do this. That's our job. Unfortunately, that one move maybe has, has wrecked the spiritual lives of more people because they don't think that they have anything to offer. They don't think that God could use them. And it's just the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are all ministers. In fact, we are all priests. We are all believer priests. In 1 Peter 2.9, this is what the Apostle Peter said, but you are a chosen people 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And so we are all believer priests. We're a priesthood of believers. It's not about what clothes we wear. It is about God calling us into ministry, no matter what our avocation may be. And we are all called to do that. And we're all qualified for service. God can use anyone in any content text that he chooses, and he will. Think about this. King David, who had been born in Bethlehem, King David was a shepherd boy. He was not a trained soldier, and yet God used him to defeat a nine-foot giant in battle. He was born not into power, but into obscurity, not into prestige, but God made him a king and used him to lead his people. Peter, the man who wrote 1 Peter 2 9, was a fisherman, just a workaday fisherman, common laborer. But God used him to win thousands of people to Jesus Christ. To write scripture. And to be a key leader in the early church. Joseph. Just an obscure carpenter. Mary. Just a teenage girl planning to get married soon. Neither one would have what we would consider the requisite requirements to raise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What in their background would tell you they'll be a good couple? They'll be a good fit for that job. Look at their resume. Look at what they've done. They've done anything. Nothing that would prepare them for that. Yet God chose them specifically and he used them miraculously for his eternal purposes. And you may be thinking, but pastor, I'm just an amateur at this stuff. Without the skills and the uh, qualifications that an expert ought to have. But you know, with God, there's no such thing as amateur status. And he can use you any way he wants to. That's his plan. There's a quip that's been attributed to a number of people. Mickey Mantle, the baseball player among them. As he celebrated a birthday in his advanced years, he said this. He said, if I had known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. I'm barely in my 70s, and I kind of thought that a few times too already. Um... You know, this, uh, this same makes me think that same thing. If I'd known my efforts could make such a difference, I maybe would have tried harder. Maybe you think the same thing. If I knew what God could do and what he's going to do, I'd have tried harder at it. If I knew what I would have, what God was going, what I would have, I would have paid more attention to the details I wouldn't have been so quick to make excuses, so quick to dismiss the possibilities. Does that sound familiar? If 
if I had only known I was still going to be around at this age. Think of all the opportunities that we were missed. All the things God wanted to do that we just said, I am not qualified for it. But the good news is that we're still right here. And the same God that can use a young couple to be the parents of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the same God who works in our lives today. And he can do whatever it is that he wants to do if we'll let him do that. Maybe you thought if I'd known God was ready to use my most forgettable efforts and my most disposable ideas uh, and that he would use me even beyond my qualifications, I would have done more. I would have done better. I would have tried harder. Well, now is the time to start. Now is the time to let God do what he wants to do. And there's a saying that says God doesn't call the qualified. You've heard this before. He qualifies the called. He doesn't wait for you to get the degrees to put you to work. He doesn't wait for your pedigree to catch up with you. He says, I just qualify you. I will put you to work where I need you because he has a calling for your life. And you may think that you're destined for anonymity, um, but God has a plan. You may think that you're, you're hardly qualified, but God has plans for you. And you may think that your efforts don't add up to much, but he has plans for you. Let me share a truth with you right here. And this truth is that God has a plan for his people, and he has a plan for you, Christian. has a plan for your life. told you earlier that some artist from the get-go, from the first note, knew that they had a big hit on their hands. And, and, and that's something of a paradox, I think. But, but we can be sure of the same thing in our lives. When you're willing to serve without recognition or reward, even in the smallest way, to be faithful to do what God has called you to do, you've got a hit on your hands. God will use you beyond your abilities. I leave you with this. When you surrender your all to Jesus, even the smallest of your efforts can have a lasting impact for generations to come. Let's pray together. Father, this morning... It might be brown-breaking news to know that no matter who we are, no matter what our qualifications are, you have plans for us. You have plans for each life in this room. You have plans for the corporate life of this room. You have plans that may seem overwhelming to us right now. So, Father, let us come before you as individuals and as a church and say, Jesus, we're yours. You're the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. I want you to be Lord of my life. And I want to just lay before you everything there is, everything that seems obscure, everything that seems insignificant and forgettable, I lay it before you as an amateur, perhaps. But I want you to use it. I want you to use me. 
Father, thank you that nobody is so insignificant that Jesus did not die for them. Nobody is in such an obscure place that Jesus does not love them. Father, we pray that anyone in the sound of my voice, whether today or down the road online, who does not know that Jesus would come to know him, to put their faith and their trust in him and him alone for the salvation that they need and the salvation that only he can give. We pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. If God's speaking to your heart today, this might be a time to get right with him. This might be a time to say, God, I know you've been calling me to do something. I just haven't wanted to do it. Or, God, I haven't been willing to let go of something that I'm holding too tight in my hand because I don't think it's worth anything, and open that hand up and let God use whatever that is. You come as we sing. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.